The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles for a, a time this morning to Acts chapter 16. This, I believe, is one of my most favorite Sundays of the year. There are a number of favorite Sundays, from Christmas to Easter to special days. This, this certainly ranks up there as one of them. <clears throat> we get, <clears throat> in a few moments, to hear the testimonies of those who have come to Christ. And we're going to hear, in just a few moments, from Dylan Carr, Trisha Davies, Jacob Huxuma, Becky McConaughey, Katie Peck, and Missy Shaftsma, and they're going to be here to uh, testify of God's grace and salvation, and I know you're going to be greatly blessed by their testimonies. I know every time I hear a testimony, I'm reminded of my salvation, I'm reminded of my baptism, and I'm reminded of God's grace in my life. And I trust that as you hear these today, the same will be true for you, that you will be reminded of God's rich grace in your life. And uh, if you've been baptized, you will rehearse and remember the, the day you were privileged to be baptized in obedience to God's command. Before we hear these testimonies, I want to review with you what God's Word says about this most sacred ordinance of baptism. It's important that we do this because there is much confusion today about the issue of baptism. There are some who would deny that believers' baptism, water baptism, baptism has any place in the church. There are some groups that would say it just doesn't have any place. That was for a certain age, and it's not for today. There are others who would say that unless you are baptized, you cannot go to heaven, that you are not saved if you have not been baptized. I remember as a college pastor on the campus of UCLA out in Los Angeles that every year we had to equip our students to know and understand another campus group's position on baptism. They held the position of baptismal regeneration that you could not go to heaven and you were not saved if you were not baptized and specifically baptized in that church. And so this was always a confusing subject for many of our students as they walked around the campus of UCLA. And this was a very zealous group, a very active group. And so each year we had to equip our students as to what the word says about baptism. There are some who would say that infants should be sprinkled to ensure the washing away of sin and salvation, and others who say that believing adults should be baptized. This all leads to confusion. There's even another group that says that they need to be baptized for someone who has already died, as if there's a, a way to vicariously baptize someone who's already dead. And so all of this is just very confusing. And how do we sort out what God's Word says about baptism. I remember for me, it was very confusing for a, a time in my life as well. I was sprinkled as an infant here in West Michigan growing up in a church. And for many, many years, I just assumed I had been obedient to God's command to be baptized because of what happened to me when I was an infant. I don't remember that. Uh, I was a little, little, but it was very confusing for me. For all these years, I assumed I was baptized. And then something amazing happened. I got saved in college. God graciously and amazingly turned my heart towards himself to, to see the glories of Christ and to turn from my sin and to come to Christ. And as I began then to study God's word, I was confused about this issue. And I remember even sitting down with a man during college saying, help me understand this. 
And he graciously walked me through the word to show me what God's word says about baptism. And so in February of 1994, on a stage in Spokane, Washington, in a baptismal tank, I was baptized and it was a wonderful occasion. It's important for us to understand this issue. The word of God says that there are two ordinances for the church. Many ordinances in the Old Testament, many practices in the Old Testament. When it comes to the church age, there are two ordinances, two primary practices of the church is to continually repeat. And those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Only two. And so it's important that we get this right and we understand very clearly what God's word says about this most important practice. Here at Maranatha Bible Church, we believe the Bibles clearly teach believers' baptism. The immersion in water of someone who has come to Christ and now wants to illustrate this glorious transformation that has taken place in their life through the waters of baptism. I love how one theologian describes baptism. He says it this way. He says, believers' baptism is a public testimony of one's union with Christ. This act symbolizes a believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This act is a solemn reminder to the individual and to all who observe that there is no turning back. That's what baptism is. It is a public declaration before God and all you who are here today that says, I am not turning back. I have come to Christ. I was once dead, I'm now alive. I was once headed to hell, I'm now headed to heaven. I was once dead in my sin, I'm now alive in Christ. And there's no turning back. I can't go back to what I was. I can't go back to who I was. I have forsaken my life of sin and rebellion against the God who has created me. And now my life is going to be lived for the praise and the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's what those who will be baptized today are saying. There's no turning back. And so baptism is really a a public declaration of an inward transformation. It's an outward symbol of what's taking place inwardly through the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want us to help us understand the significance and the importance of this ordinance. And I want to look at one of the most significant baptisms and salvations in the New Testament. It is the salvation and the baptism of the first Christian in Europe. Most of us here today are of European descent. This is the first believer in Europe, and we can see her glorious transformation and her subsequent baptism. Her name is Lydia. And the story of this is found in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 15. I invite you to follow along as I read this account. Acts 16, verse 11 says, Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And there was a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful of the Lord, 
come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This morning, I want to walk through this text with you. I want you to see her glorious salvation. I want you to see her willingness to be baptized. And I want to draw then some principles toward the end regarding baptism. Let me set the context for you first. This is the second missionary journey of Paul. You remember that in Acts 13 and 14, Paul was on his first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 15, he traveled to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council to find out what they would say about Gentiles having to obey the laws of Judaism. Well, after that was concluded, he decided to go on his second missionary journey. And so he wanted to take with him Silas. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Paul didn't want to take John Mark because John Mark had deserted them on their first missionary journey. And Paul was kind of upset about that. And so Barnabas urged them to take John. Paul said, no, we can't. We can't trust him. And so there was a parting of the ways. Barnabas went his way with John Mark and Paul chose Silas. And off they went on their second missionary journey. They came to a couple of cities called Lystra and Derbe. And there they found a young man named Timothy, whom they asked to accompany on their second missionary trip. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother and the son of a Gentile Greek father. So he had come to Christ as a young man through the testimony of his mom and his grandma. And God graciously transformed him. And Paul said, we need to take that man with him, with us. We need to train him and teach him to proclaim the gospel. And so they took him on their second missionary journey. And in doing so, they circumcised him so he would not be an offense to the Jews. So now it's Paul and it's Silas and it's Timothy traveling on their second trip. They traveled to a place called Troas where Paul received a vision at night asking them to come to Macedonia to preach the gospel there in Macedonia. Now, if you remember your geography, go back to seventh grade, Macedonia contains Greece. That's primarily the main country that makes up Macedonia. And so there in Asia, Paul receives this vision that says, you need to come to Macedonia. You need to come and tell us the gospel. And so they weren't trying to go there initially. They were trying to go into Asia. Look in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. It says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So here's this team. They're, they're trying to go back into Asia. They're trying to preach the gospel in Asia. And somehow, in a way that we, we don't understand, the Spirit of God says, No. You're not going to go there. You need to go this way. You need to go west. You need to go proclaim the gospel in Macedonia. That's important. It's important because up to this point, the gospel has not penetrated that area. The gospel has been in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and in Western Asia, but it's not traveled beyond that. It's not gone in to Europe, but that's about about to change now. And the gospel is about to penetrate the European continent as they traverse the Aegean Sea, into Europe. So Paul's received a vision, a vision to go into Macedonia. And so they get in a boat in Troas. And notice that at this point, someone else joins them. Look at verse 10. It says, When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is now first person. Who is this? Up to this point, it's all been third person. They and he. But now there's a we. 
Who wrote this? This is Luke. Dr. Luke. And at some point, and the text doesn't tell us, but at some point here, Dr. Luke joins this band of missionaries. So now, this is the first we section in the book of Acts. There are about two or three more. After that, as, as Luke tells us that he was with this party, traveling with them, this is the first one. And so we know that now it's not just Paul and Silas and Timothy. Now Luke is there. That's a pretty good band of brothers, isn't it? Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke. And they head out on a boat from Troas off to sea. Look at verse 11. It says, so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis. So they set sail. They come in the middle of the night to an island called Samothrace. It's a big island about halfway between Turkey and Greece, about 5,000 feet in the air. And presumably they spent the night there because to travel at night in a ship is dangerous. And so they, they spent the night there to avoid the dangers of night sailing. And the next day it says they traveled on to Neapolis. So this was a two-day trip from Troas on to Neapolis. And Neapolis is the port city for Philippi. Two days to get there. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 6, it tells us that it took them five days to get back. God was with them. Two days to get there, five days to get back. The winds were with them. God was favorable towards them. And certainly we don't want to spiritualize this too much, but certainly God was approving of this trip and God was enabling them to to bring the gospel to Europe. And he was behind them. He was with them. And the work he had given them to do would be accomplished. And so they head for Europe. They land at Neapolis. Look at verse 12. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Philippi was about 10 miles inland from Neapolis. And so when they arrive here in Neapolis, they begin the the 10-mile trek into the city of Philippi. And I want you to notice what Luke tells us about this city. He says it's a, a leading city of Macedonia, a colony of Rome. Very important. This was a very important city in that area. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, and he was the father of Alexander the Great. And this city, the city of Philippi, was the site of a a great Roman battle in 42 BC where the forces of Antony and Octavius defeated those of Brutus and Cassius. This was a big battle at that time. The victory was won. The Roman Republic was destroyed and the Roman Empire was then set up. And so this resulted in this city of Philippi that became known as a Roman colony. Paul tells us that, or Luke tells us that right here in verse 12. He calls this a Roman colony. And so this is a city outside of Italy, outside of Rome, that is Rome's province. It is a a possession of Rome. The people that lived there in Philippi were citizens of Rome. They were Italian citizens. This became a a colony. They had all the rights of Rome. They had all the privileges of Rome. They had all the, 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 the joys that went with being a Roman citizen. I want you to keep in mind that at this point, the gospel's not penetrated. It's not gone into Europe yet. It's not traveled into this land, but that that's all about to change. Look at verse 12. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, and we were staying in this city for some days. So here's Paul, Silas, 
Timothy and Luke. That's a pretty powerful force. And they weren't here on a sightseeing trip. They weren't there to take pictures. They weren't there to buy souvenirs. This was no vacation. They were there to proclaim the gospel. That's it. They're there to bring the gospel to this, to this land. And so this stage is now set for the salvation and the baptism of this first convert in the, the land of Europe by the name of Lydia. Look at verse 13. Look what he says. He says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled says it's on the Sabbath day. Paul's tradition was anytime he went into a city, he would go and start in the synagogue. This was always his, his mode of operation. This was always his strategy. Anytime he went into a new city, he would wait for the Sabbath and he would show up at the synagogue. Because he knew that they could get there, he could minister to the Jews, and if he could minister to the Jews, then he would have a a force behind him. If they trusted Christ as their Savior, they could then go help and proclaim the gospel and preach Christ in that area. So he always went to the synagogue first. So he waits here in Philippi till the Sabbath day, the day when he knew the people would be meeting. There's a problem, though. There's no synagogue. There's no synagogue in Philippi. How do you know that? Look at verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. There's no synagogue. They're they're, they're having to go outside the city to find the place where the people are meeting. Say, how do you know there's no synagogue? You need 10 men in a city... Jewish men to form a synagogue. If you didn't have at least 10 men who were heads of households, you couldn't form a synagogue. So you read the text here, the fact that they go outside the city and the fact that they find only women gathered down by the riverside indicates very clearly there was no synagogue there. There was no minimum number of men there to form this synagogue. So, They go outside the city. Verse 13. They went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. They know there's no synagogue, but they know that typically there's a place outside the city where you can find people meeting for prayer. There would be a place where they could meet, probably in the open air or in a very simple building where they could fellowship together, where they could worship together. This was the alternate place for the synagogue. So these men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke, find out that there's no synagogue. They find out, though, the place where they would probably be meeting. And so they they head out to the city, out of the city, to the riverside, and they find this group of women gathered there for prayer and Bible study. And they they walk up to these women, and they begin speaking to them. Verse 13 says they begin to, to speak to these ladies. I wonder how that conversation went. Morning. Uh, I'm Paul. This is my friend Silas. This is my friend Timothy. And this is uh, Luke. Uh, could we join your Bible study? That's pretty good. Wouldn't you like those guys to show up at your Bible study? I'm not sure it happened that way, but I have to imagine it was something like that. These women are gathered and, and suddenly these four men show up. And Luke 
then introduces us to one of these women. Look at verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Huh. Says that there's this woman here named Lydia, and she's from the city of Thyatira. That's one of the cities in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, when Christ wrote seven letters to seven churches. This was one of the churches that he wrote a letter to. It's in Western Asia. It's in what is today known as Turkey. There must have been at least a fairly significant Christian community there in Thyatira in order for there to be a well-established church for both Christ to write a letter to and for this woman to be from and presumably to hear of the things of the Lord before even coming here to Philippi. So there's this woman named Lydia. And verse 14 goes on to tell us that she was a seller of purple fabrics. Now, what about this? We know from history that Thyatira was famous for its purple dyes. They were famous for making garments. They were famous for making dyed garments. And they were particularly famous for their purple dyed garments. They would catch shellfish. They would extract a purple dye from these shellfish. And they would then dye clothes and sell these. If you know anything about history, you know that purple was usually the symbol, the color of royalty and wealth. And so these were very expensive garments. Not every person could afford these garments. These were only for the the super rich. And so here's Lydia from the city of Thyatira, where purple garments are made for the super rich people, and she's here in Philippi selling them. This is her business. This is her job. And she was in the fabric business, selling these purple dyed clothes. She did pretty well. And we know she did pretty well because she had her own house. Look at verse 15. It says, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Come into my house. She's got a house. That was not very typical in that day. And so for a woman to have her own house indicates that she was doing a pretty good business. She was making and turning a pretty good profit here with selling her purple fabrics. In fact, by the way, did you know this? That the church in Philippi began meeting in her house. Look at verse 40. Chapter 16, verse 40. It says, Then they went out of prison, and they entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brothers, the church, they encouraged them and departed. Lydia's house was big enough, not only for these four men to stay, it was big enough to house the church in Philippi. So here's the first convert the first member of the Philippian church. And she was gracious enough to house this church as it grew. You see God's grace all over this, don't you? So here's Lydia. I want you to notice something else about her in verse 14. Go back up to verse 14. It says that she was a worshiper of God. Now what is that? A worshiper of God is a technical term to refer to a Gentile who has... Come to worship the God of Israel, but is not yet truly a believer, a Christian, a New Testament saint. She was a God-fearer. She was a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile who believed in God. 
She was a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel. She was a Gentile, a a Greek, who had had come to, to, in a sense, worship the God of the Jews. And she most likely heard about this in Thyatira, her hometown. If there was a church there, then she most certainly had heard about God and possibly began worshipping the God of Israel. But she wasn't truly a New Testament saint yet. Not saved, not a Christian, not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. She didn't know of Christ But she wanted to know God. And she was seeking after God. She was a God worshiper. She was a God fearer. And certainly God had begun to work in her heart such that she was seeking after the God of the universe. You say there's no such thing as a seeker. And you're partially true. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 says no man seeks after God. That's true. There is no person who naturally seeks after God. No one in their own natural state wakes up someday and says, you know what? I think I'm going to seek God today. It doesn't work that way. There are no seekers unless God first begins to work in your heart. And God begins to remove the blinders. And God begins to allow you to see your sin and the glories of Christ. If if God begins to work that way, then you begin to seek after God. And you begin to desire God. And perhaps you're here today and you don't know anything about this stuff. This whole baptism thing. This whole church and Christian thing. And Christ and the cross and the death of... But you're interested. My friend, you're not here by accident this morning. You're not here by accident. If, you're, if your heart is being drawn to God, it's because the God of the universe has been pricking your heart and working upon your soul to open your eyes to see that you need a Savior. And there is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When God begins that work in someone's heart, they, they want to know they seek, they desire, they, they want to know this God whom they're beginning to learn about. And that's exactly what happened in Lydia's case. She was desiring to know this God whom she'd been acquainted with in her hometown of Thyatira. And now she's here in Philippi and she's meeting with other ladies by the riverside and she's worshiping the God of Israel, but she doesn't know Christ yet. God was working in her heart. He was drawing her to himself. He was overcoming her hard-heartedness and her rebellion. And she begins to understand that. In fact, look at verse 14. Look at the end. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the way it's written in the Greek, she kept on listening with earnest intentionality. Hanging on every word. I can guarantee you what these guys were speaking. They weren't talking about the tires. They weren't talking about the pistons. They weren't talking about the lions for sure. They weren't speaking about politics. They were speaking about Christ. And I know that because in Acts chapter 13, as Paul arrives on his first missionary journey, he preaches the gospel. And in Acts chapter 14, on his first missionary journey, verse 21, it says, And they preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples. That's what they're doing. They're here meeting with these ladies and they're proclaiming Christ. They're proclaiming the gospel. And Lydia is hanging on every word and she's listening carefully and she's taking it all in. 
These men were preaching the holiness of God. They were preaching the depravity of man. They were preaching the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were preaching that Christ is the king and he's coming back. And this is the content of their message. And Lydia is listening and God was drawing her. And her heart was already softening to the things of the Lord. I love this. God never turns away a seeker. Right? God never ever turns away a seeker. God never has someone come to him and say, I want to know you, God. I'm interested in knowing about you. And he says, no, I'm sorry. You, you can't come to me. God always welcomes seekers. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. God welcomes seekers. And perhaps you're here this morning and you want to know about this God, friend. He will not turn you away. He will not reject you. He will not let you down. If you've had a bad example for an earthly father, your heavenly father will not treat you that way. He will welcome you into his family. He will minister to you. He will invite you to come to himself. In fact, he will help you do that. Look at verse 14. Watch this. I love this. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Now watch this. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is sovereign grace. This is divine assistance. This is supernatural regeneration by the powerful, sovereign hand of God to help the seeker come to know Him. This is sovereignty of God and salvation. I don't pretend to understand how the balance works between man's responsibility to believe and God's sovereignty to save. I don't understand how those both work together. You say, how does someone become a Christian? They have to believe the gospel. They have to come to Christ. They have to repent of their sins and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. And yet it's also true that no one can do that unless God first does a work in their heart and draws them to himself and removes the blinders and helps them see their need for a savior and elects them and draws them and supernaturally regenerates them. That's true as well. How can they both be true? I don't know. But they both are. Charles Spurgeon has well said that the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man to believe are like two parallel lines that don't don't ever seem to touch. But in heaven, they touch and they meet. When someone asked Charles Spurgeon, how do you reconcile the responsibility of man to believe the gospel and the sovereignty of God to save sinners? Spurgeon said this, he says, you don't have to reconcile friends they're friends they get along the doctrine of man's responsibility and the the doctrine of god's sovereignty and salvation are friends you don't need to reconcile them somehow in heaven they're both true and you see them come colliding right here in the conversion of lydia says in verse 14 that she responded She responded to the gospel. She believed the gospel. She repented. She embraced Christ. That's man's responsibility. How did it happen? God helped her do that. He opened her heart. They're both true. And that's where we have to leave it. 
This is divine election. This is divine regeneration where God works in the heart of a sinner to remove their blinders, to help them see the glories of Christ. And they see Christ and they say, I need that Savior. I want that Savior. And they run to the Savior. This is divine regeneration. If you struggle with that, listen, you need to understand, if that were not true, no one would ever be saved. You and I would never be saved had God not first worked in our hearts to draw us to Him. So if you're a believer here today and you know Christ, you are that because of God's sovereign work in your heart. So often I hear, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart. I raised my hand. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. What's the emphasis there? I, me. You don't see that in Scripture, friends. The testimony of Scripture is God does this. God opens the heart. God draws the sinner. God causes the the sinner who's blind and dead in their sin to be made alive so they can see the glories of Christ and be saved. And when that happens, then you respond to the demands of the gospel. Those who are being baptized today will stand up here in a few moments and when you hear their testimonies, they are going to publicly testify to the fact that God has done a work in sovereignly opening their heart and helping them believe so they can be saved and give evidence of that today. Well, this is the conversion of Lydia. And you see God's grace all over it. His, his mercy is all over it. And then I want you to notice what happened. It says in verse 15 that she and her household were baptized she, she, she became baptized. She, she went and, and was obedient to Christ's command to make disciples and then baptize them. And there's an order there. You make the disciples first and then you baptize them. And that's exactly what we see in Lydia's case. She was made a disciple and now she is baptized in obedience to Christ. Not only her, but her household as well. Some want to read infants into that or babies into that, but the text doesn't say that. It says her household. Presumably her grown children, possibly servants, possibly those who were there in her home with her. Those who were able to comprehend the gospel and be saved were also baptized that day. It's a wonderful story. God's grace is all over Lydia's life. And God's grace is all over the lives of those who are going to publicly testify today of what God has done in saving them. I want to just conclude this morning with three implications on baptism that I just want to draw your attention to. They're very simple, but I think they're helpful for us to consider and remember as we are about to hear testimonies and witness baptisms. First, number one, salvation and baptism are inseparably linked. This is the first truth that we need to understand is that baptism and salvation are inseparably linked. Those who are saved are those who are baptized. And you can't separate one without the other. I want you to notice that the first thing Lydia did after her salvation was her baptism. She came to Christ and then she was immediately baptized. She didn't wait around. She didn't delay. She didn't put it off. She couldn't wait to show to others that she's been transformed by Christ. And she wanted everyone to know in the waters of baptism that she is a new creation now changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Her sin has been removed. 
She has been adopted into God's family. There's no desire to delay. And she immediately comes to Christ. And it immediately is baptized. You know, we see that in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches that great Pentecost message. He preaches the gospel to 3,000 or at least more than that, many more than that. 3,000 of them come to Christ. And how many of them are baptized? 3,000. The ones who are saved are also the ones who are baptized. And so baptism and salvation are closely linked in the scriptures. Spurgeon also said, nothing is more plainly taught in the New Testament than it is the duty of every believer in Christ to be baptized. They go together. You come to Christ, you engage in the waters of baptism. That's what Lydia did, and that's what those are doing this morning as they are baptized. So salvation and baptism are inseparably linked. Number two, there's a second important lesson I want you to understand is that immersion is the proper mode for baptism. Immersion is the proper mode for baptism. Some say, you know, it doesn't really matter as long as you get wet somehow. You can sprinkle, you can dip, you can pour. It doesn't really matter. And I would say, no, it does matter. And the principle you see here is that immersion is the proper mode of baptism. How do you know that? Because the word baptism is the word baptizo, which literally means to dip completely, to immerse, or to drown. I love that. It's okay, we have lifeguards stationed outside the pond, you'll be fine. It means literally to put you under the water. To, to immerse completely, to put you entirely under. Say, so how, how do you know for sure that Lydia was baptized this way? Well, I know for sure because that's the word that's used, baptizo. And also, where was she? By a river. Look, water. Right? There was no need to delay. There was no need to put this off. Here she is. She comes to Christ and immediately is baptized there in the river. And this is consistent with what we see in the rest of Scripture. Listen, every baptism, every believer's baptism that you see in the scriptures is always by immersion. Mark chapter 1 verse 5, Christ who is our example was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. John 3 verse 23, John was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. Acts chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the Ethiopian, and he baptized him, and then they came up out of the water. This is the mode. This is important. This is very crucial because it's a symbol. And the symbolism is only there if immersion is there. What's intended to be symbolized? It's the washing away of sin and it's the new life in Christ. And that can't be symbolized by sprinkling or dipping or pouring. It's very, very, very important. Only immersion symbolizes the reality of what baptism signifies. Martin Luther again says, it may be rendered dipping, but when we dip something into the water, that it may be entirely covered with water. And we're going to make sure that happens today. You will be entirely covered with water. Why? Because it's a symbol. 
It's a symbol of the fact that you're completely new, transformed, washed clean, not because of the water, not because of your works, but solely on the basis of Jesus Christ and his work upon Calvary. Number three, there's a third truth I want you to understand from this, and it is this, that baptism illustrates our union with Christ's death and his resurrection. It's an illustration of our union with Christ and his death and resurrection. Earlier today, we read Romans chapter 6, which tells us very clearly that we are united with Christ. We die when he died. We raised to new life when he was raised to new life. Colossians 2 verse 12 says, We have been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is a picture, it's a symbol of your union and identification with Jesus Christ. You're associated with his death, you're associated with his resurrection. He died, you died, he lives, you live. This is what the early Christians said when they were baptized. This is their confession. They would say this, they would say, I hereby confess in my willing submission to this divinely appointed ordinance, my glad obedience to my Lord and Savior. In this symbolic way, I show my identification with the one who bore my sins, took my place, died in my stead, was buried and rose again for my justification. As Christ went through the reality of suffering in death to secure my salvation. So, in being immersed into water and coming out, I thus publicly declare my identification with my Lord in his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf with the intention to walk with him in newness of life and function as a member of his body. That's what they're saying today as well. So, this is baptism. Maybe some of you are here today and you're saying, you know what? I know these people. I knew what they were like. You need to understand that they're new, changed, transformed, new creatures, not because of the baptism, but because of Christ. So we're going to rejoice in a few moments as we hear their testimonies, and then we'll rejoice as we put them in the waters of baptism. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Lydia. Thank you for her conversion. Father, thank you for how you sovereignly drew her to yourself. Lord, thank you that you opened her heart to see the realities of the gospel and to be saved. Lord, we know that those who are going to testify in a few moments have experienced the same. They have been redeemed. They have been saved. They have been brought new to a new life because of Christ, and we rejoice with them. Lord, be glorified in their testimonies, be glorified in their baptisms, and bless their step of obedience. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.